Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. Each week, we interview top experts in physical therapy, pain science, and integrative pain care. You'll learn the most up-to-date information for treating and reversing persistent pain. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, welcome to this week's episode of the Healing Pain Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Joe Tata. As always, it's a pleasure to be spending this time with you. We've got a really interesting and important episode today that I know you're going to love to sink your teeth into. If you've been following the Healing Pain Podcast for some time, you know we speak a lot about a biopsychosocial approach for the management of chronic pain conditions. As you know, many physical therapists are enrolling in courses such as Explain Pain, Pain Neuroscience Education, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, Pain Coaching. All these courses are ways to help improve patient outcomes and for physical therapists and other health professionals to advance their skills in the realm of psychosocial care when it comes to the treatment of chronic pain. However, the challenges that many physical therapists report once they start taking these courses is that sometimes they feel like they've been inadequately trained or they lack the confidence to take the skills and then go back to the clinic Monday morning and start to use them with their patients in clinical practice. And I know you can relate to that. There's nothing worse than spending your money on a course, spending your time on a course, and not being able to take the information and apply it to your clinical practice on Monday morning. And even though a growing number of research studies have explored physical therapist perceptions of biopsychosocial training, we still don't have a really good picture of what physical therapists think of training and how they can take that training and place it into their clinical practice. Today's guest, Rika Holopainen, is a physiotherapist from Finland. She is currently a PhD student, and her main research project is to explore patients as well as physical therapists' perceptions of a biopsychosocial approach to the management of musculoskeletal conditions. And a good part of her PhD work includes studying physical therapist perceptions of learning and implementing a biopsychosocial intervention to treat musculoskeletal pain conditions. On today's episode, you'll learn how biopsychosocial training can change the understanding of pain for physical therapists, the professional benefits of learning about a biopsychosocial approach to pain, and the clinical challenges encountered by some practitioners as they implement these skills into practice. After listening to today's episode, I really recommend that you go and read the paper that Rika wrote. It's a really great paper and talks about the opportunities as well as the challenges of physical therapists learning a biopsychosocial or a psychosocial approach to pain. It's interesting to me as someone who teaches on these topics, many of you know that I have a course in acceptance and commitment therapy as well as pain science, and some of the things that she mentions in her paper, some of her findings, are findings that I've found when I teach students as well. There are two things that she does not mention in her paper that I'd like to bring to light for those of you that are listening. The reason why physical therapists have challenges with implementing these types of topics into practice is two reasons. One is access to content. Oftentimes, someone will go take a course, whether it's a weekend course or an online course, and they go through the training, and then in essence, they're cut off from the training. So they may have a manual they can read, but there's nothing like accessing a video course that you can play over and over and over again and go back to the content so you can review it as you implement these skills into clinical practice. So access to content or continued access to content is one key that's missing from the training. The second and perhaps the most important is ongoing clinical mentorship. 
So once someone has completed, let's say, an explain pain course or a course on acceptance and commitment therapy, physical therapists need a little bit of extra mentorship, coaching, and guidance as they begin to implement these skills into practice. So the two keys to training physical therapists and psychosocial aspects of care is continued access to content and ongoing membership. And of course, if you are a participant of one of the Integrated Pain Science Institute courses, you know that you have access to the content for life. You can keep coming back to that content over and over and over again. So you can watch all the video recordings. And of course, there's ongoing mentorship each month. We have monthly mentorship calls that continue throughout the year, whether you're currently in the course or whether you're complete with it. Everyone is invited back to those courses once you joined. Okay, I know you're interested to hear more about Rika and her research. So let's begin with today's episode. Hey there, Rika. Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. It's great to have you here this week. It's really nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, likewise. I'm excited to chat with you. I came across early publication of a paper that you published, and I think it's really important, not only for the physiotherapy community around the globe, but also for other practitioners and, of course, people mm-hmm. who live with pain, as we're starting to find out safe and effective ways that we can treat them. So the paper you published was in 2020, very recently, in the Journal of Pain, and the paper is mm-hmm. called Physiotherapist Perceptions of Learning and Implementing a biopsychosocial intervention to treat musculoskeletal pain conditions, a systematic review, and metasynthesis of qualitative studies. So it was a qualitative analysis versus quantitative. Both are important, but I find qualitative to be interesting because we get some really good information from the participants of the study. But tell us why it was important that you proceeded and, and did this kind of work. Okay, first of all, we were doing a similar kind of study in Finland. It's not published yet. It's under review. And under that process, we noticed that there are other studies going on. And the problems that people are facing around the world are quite similar. But it was important to summarize this research and to help us build maybe better training interventions in the future. Because that's what we're doing as well for the future studies. We could maybe learn ourselves and maybe others learn too. Yeah. Can you define in your terms, and maybe I guess in the terms of the study, what a biopsychosocial intervention is for musculoskeletal pain? Okay, that's a good question. There are a lot of different definitions. And another term that is used in this context is psychologically informed physiotherapy or psychologically informed practice. And in our study, that would mean an intervention that would consider not only the physical side of pain, that wouldn't, would be more than exercise, usually there would be a cognitive behavioral component in the study. So something related to the psychological and social side of pain and the patient's pain experience as well. And yeah, many of the interventions from the studies that we included were, for example, cognitive functional therapy, uh, start back approach, yeah, cognitive behavioral therapy. There was even some ACT in there as well, right? Yes, yes, as well, yeah. Right, so you identified cognitive functional therapy, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Act, and then the Start Back. So different types of cognitive and behavioral interventions that a physiotherapist may choose to inform their care of people with pain. Yes, and also behavioral change interventions for more like to get people moving more, stuff like that as well. So quite variable approaches. So. And when we talk about cognitive behavioral therapies or techniques that physiotherapists are using, is that a means by which we engage a patient in addressing function or activity? Or is that an individual component itself that we may utilize? 
well, I'm most familiar with the cognitive functional therapy approach because our research is around that. So I can mostly say from that perspective, but yes, I think in, in a way you first mentioned, like we combine, it's not a therapy we would do like in psychology, but we use those techniques from psychology to like enhance our physiotherapy approaches. For example, we use a lot of graded exposure kind of things. Goal setting, that's also cognitive behavioral techniques. Yeah, cognitive functional therapy has a decent amount of exposure therapy, Mm -hmm. which is wonderful, especially with that back pain population. But in essence, it still may take the therapist a bit of time to sit down and talk to a patient, coach them, guide them, counsel them, whatever word you'd like to use, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was one thing that came up in our study and also in the previous studies that in the beginning when people learn approaches like this, So they feel that they don't have enough time when they're learning to listen to the patients more and ask open questions. So at first it feels like it takes more time, but also in this study, so quite often when people get used to it, they actually notice that they can make it. You don't need to do everything at once. Right. So give us an overview of the study. Tell us what you studied and tell us what some of the Mm -hmm. findings were. Yeah. In the beginning, so we made a systematic search in the databases and we ended up finding 12 studies that considered physiotherapist perceptions of learning and implementing uh, these biopsychosocial interventions. There were altogether 116 physiotherapists involved in these studies and there were different kind of approaches analyzing the data. Most were doing thematic analysis for the data, but there were other approaches. And we summarized the data. Of course, we took like uh, the result parts of these articles, the interpretations from the researchers and the quotations and made a thematic synthesis about the data. And that's where we ended up with our results. And we found four themes and 16 sub-themes from the data. You want me to describe them now or should we talk about that later? Because there are four kind of major ones, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you can go into those four, I think that would be useful for the listeners. Yeah. So first of all, I think most of the physios seem to have benefited from the training. So the first two themes describe that the physios change their understanding and practice as a result of the training. And they saw some professional benefits from that. And... There were also barriers, and I think actually quite a lot of barriers for the learning and implementation in the clinic that the physios faced. And then the fourth theme was learning requirements, what the physios so important in the learning process, what they needed to support their learning. Right. So the four areas are a change understanding and practice, Mm -hmm. professional benefits for the clinician, clinical challenges or barriers that were that come up in the training mm. and then learning requirements. So how a therapist yes. learns it. So let's kind of dive into these one mm-hmm. by one and just talk about some points of them. So a change understanding and practice, what does that really mean in terms of physiotherapists moving from a biomedical model to a biopsychosocial model? Yes. So first of all, the physiotherapist reported that they started seeing pain as more multidimensional, including also the psychological and social aspects. And Some of the training interventions had taught physiotherapists to use questionnaires to identify these factors, and the physios had started using the questionnaires. Then there were some breathing relaxation exercises that the physios started to use, 
And well, also they understood that the care needed to be patient-centered. Like before, some had been like the fixers and doers in their work, and they started giving more responsibility for their patients. And I think a big theme was also that many physios reported that their therapeutic alliances started to get better and their communication got better. Yeah. Quite a lot of them also started using the approach wider, which means that if the intervention in the study they participated was about low back pain, so they started using uh, their skills also with patients who had knee pain or stuff like that. Yeah, all very important points. I think especially that the fixer mentality mm-hmm. that many physiotherapists have when they first come out of school, oftentimes they notice that change when they first start taking some type of cognitive behavioral training, usually typically the mindfulness and behavior change approaches have less of an emphasis on fixing or alleviating pain where some traditional cognitive behavioral therapy approaches still have the belief that we can change, modify, fix, eliminate, alleviate pain right off the bat. So different approaches. Mm -hmm. So the second one is professional benefits. Mm -hmm. So professionals are always interested in how they can move their career forward, how they can benefit themselves, how their practice may benefit. Can you go into some of those specifics? Mm -hmm. Yeah, quite many reported that they felt that they were better able to help their patients. So I think that's quite important because I think everybody notices that kind of situation where we have patients who have persistent pain and you feel like that, okay, I have nothing to give to this person. Like they've been seeing many, many, many professionals and nobody has been able to fix them. And then you end up feeling a little bit helpless. So I think this is something that the physios in many of the studies reported that they didn't feel anymore, that they, they had more tools to help these people. Yeah, so they have more cognitive technologies that they can draw on in addition to their skill set as a physical therapist. Yes, and I think it's also about what we uh, talked earlier, that we don't feel the pressure of fixing somebody anymore so much so we can more be there to support them and to take care and ask questions and helping people to figure things out themselves. So I think that's part of that as well. Yeah, you become a guide instead of Mm -hmm. the responsibility of having to actually fix someone. Yeah, yeah. Especially those physios who participated training in the start bucket approach. So they reported that their practice had become more effective. And that means that they were able to discharge some of the patients earlier who they now based on the questionnaires know this would get better anyway without their help. And some physios even reported that their job satisfaction increased. Mm-hmm. So they found their job more fulfilling and rewarding after the training. So would be a win-win situation. We are able to help our patient better and we are feeling better ourselves. So. Yeah, that's true. And the training I've done with therapists on ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, I find that it helps with burnout. It helps with professional burnout, which is important. Yeah. And then let's talk about some of the, ba- the challenges or the barriers that have come up in training. Yeah. So I think the first challenge that has also come up in the first, like previous studies, are the psychosocial factors again because a lot of physios had the training in more biological things and when they are thought about the psychosocial factors and they should be dealing with patients who bring those issues in a discussion so they are not prepared for that and it looks like that the training hasn't been able to give confidence for everybody in doing that and a lot of physios were afraid of opening the Pandora's box or a kind of worms or whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. So they didn't feel comfortable 
yet. When you say opening Pandora's box, mm-hmm. you're talking about things like setting off trauma or emotionally dysregulating someone during the session and the therapist may not have the tools to help negotiate that. Mm, I think, yeah. And people were not maybe ready if somebody started talking about their depression or some like traumatic experiences or stuff like that. So they didn't feel ready to sit with that and listen to those people and those stories. Which is really interesting because when I reflect back on my practice as a physiotherapist, a large percent of our patient population is struggling with depression. Mm -hmm. And I think most therapists recognize that, but yet they maybe are a little bit cautious about treading into that area, basically. Yeah, and that's a common like question, like, well, but we are not psychologists, like we're not supposed to do any therapy, and and I guess that's a barrier if we don't like see our role in that area. Yeah, it's so interesting to me because one of the best interventions for depression is actually exercise, even above and beyond cognitive behavioral therapy. So we look at depression as this treatment that someone should go see a mental health professional for cognitive behavioral therapy, and of course that's important, but I think we should also fall back on our own skills as physiotherapists that actually may be more effective for those types of conditions. Yes, and quite often in case of pain, so uh, the depression is about that the person is not able to do the things they enjoy and their life circumstances have shrunken and maybe somebody is just sitting at home and not able to do anything. So no wonder that you are not feeling so good. Yeah. So maybe our goal would be to help people uh, get back to those things and maybe we can help with their mood as well. Yeah. And one other question I did not ask you earlier, in the participants in the study, are they from all over the world? So the United States and other countries, let's say, because physiotherapy education has changed a little bit globally. There are different things that are happening in the United States as far as like the doctor physical therapy degree versus other countries that may be at a bachelor's level and the amount they've been introduced to cognitive and behavioral interventions may vary a little bit. Yeah. These studies were from US, Australia, and different European countries, so Western countries. And I guess most of uh, them were like English-speaking countries. Yeah. So I'd imagine that would include bachelor-level trained physical Mm -hmm. therapists, masters, and probably DPTs or doctors of physical therapy. Yeah. And I think they had quite long work experience in most of studies. Like mm-hmm. I think the lowest was 13 years and years of practice was the highest was 25 years. And they had no so, prior training in cognitive behavioral therapies before the studies. Mm, well, that was not so well reported in many of the studies. I guess a lot of the participants actually had a previous training. So that's also a good question that what would be the situation if you start from really zero you have no background. So uh, some of the studies reported the physios who participated had interest in this area. And that's different from the study we did in Finland that is not included in this review yet. Mm -hmm. So we had participants who were told to participate the study by their boss or something. So they really had no previous experience in this. Okay. So back to the barriers. So one barrier or challenge may be that a professional physiotherapist, a physical therapist, may feel a little uneasy with Mm -hmm. certain types of patients that maybe have, let's say, severe forms of anxiety or depression Mm -hmm. as they're starting to implement these treatment techniques into practice. What other types of barriers should we be aware of? Yeah, I think it's related to this that many physios reported that this is a little bit outside the usual professional role of a physiotherapist. Yeah, we are used to 
deal with the physical side of things. And I think actually it would be an interesting and important discussion, like what is the scope of physiotherapy? What is actually physiotherapy nowadays? What does it mean? It's not just exercise. I think we can't just avoid when we're working with people. So we just can't avoid dealing with psychological and social issues. Right. So in your opinion, the psychosocial aspects of care are inseparable from physiotherapy Mm -hmm. practice. Yes, sure. And some therapists want to see that reflected in things like practice acts like around the world. And some physiotherapists feel like, well, this is just kind of what we do. Mm -hmm. You know, it's part of our profession, whether I'm learning it in school, whether I'm learning it in a continuing education course. This is just part of a continuation of my professional development. And I think one problem here is that we think of like biopsychosocial approach as uh, some kind of intervention, but actually also quite a lot of philosophy from where we work. And it's not just that we don't have maybe that much evidence yet via psychosocial interventions, but we have a lot of understanding about pain nowadays, how it works, how pain affects a person's life. So I think that's something we can't deny and the importance of communication and patient-centeredness and stuff like this. So I think it's again about, yeah, we're getting things sometimes a little bit wrong. And then finally, the learning requirements, because there are lots of different ways you can teach adult learners or teach professional learners new skills. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the learning, the ways that the physios were thought in these interventions that were right a lot, first of all, most of them seem to have some kind of like long-term training and nine out of 12 studies reported using mentoring. And the physiotherapists said that they really liked to have a structured approach, which means that they would have some kind of a treatment manual and stuff like that. But what I find interesting there is that even though they liked the manual, so they were still rebelling against the protocol. Like they kind of wanted some models and formulas, but then in the end didn't want to work according to them. So they were mixing and matching with their previous approaches. But I think this reflects quite a lot what we see in practice when we're teaching people. So people want to have clear, if something happens, then I need to do this. We want this kind of formula and then I think it gets problematic if we can't let go of that and individualize and take the patient into account. We start just treating with our tools and not the person. And just so I just want to clarify this point for everyone, because it's an important point. Mm -hmm. So the participants in the studies that you looked at, they were enrolled as physiotherapists in clinical studies. So they were provided with, let's say, a formula or a protocol that they had to follow as part of the study. And they found that beneficial because it provides a framework for them to follow. But if I'm hearing what you're saying correctly, Mm -hmm. I would imagine as they learn that protocol, Mm -hmm. then they start to develop their own kind of cognitive flexibility with the models they're learning Mm -hmm. to use it appropriately in different ways. Yes, that happened. and, And it looks like that also for some physios, what happened was that they abandoned some parts, some techniques right in the beginning. They didn't see them fit their way of working. Which is very normal. It's kind of like, Mm. well, in my practice, for example, McKenzie fits better, but Mulligan concepts don't fit as well. (laughs) And someone may say, well, I really like these concepts from cognitive functional therapy, but these other ones more from traditional cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't quite fit where my perception is of, of treating someone with pain. Yeah, and some reported having like they would pick some easier techniques and and start using them, and then they would forget about the more difficult ones and wouldn't start practicing. 
Yeah, that's perfectly normal. So it's a learning mm-hmm. curve that's happening as people are yes. implementing new skills and technology into practice, a bit of a learning curve. They're trying different things, increasing their confidence and their competence. And then as they work, they become more skillful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Then some of the like training approaches, there would be more strict, I assume, and some would be more like flexible, like what do you expect the physios to do? And I think this is interesting in the research context. So actually, if the physios don't do what they're supposed to do, then it raises the question, like, what do we really like measure when we study something? If somebody is supposed to do acts in an RCT and they are doing something else. So actually, what are the results actually telling us? So. Right. Right. Interesting question here. Tell me about the mentoring. You mentioned mentoring. I find mentoring is really important for new therapists who are coming out of school. Mm-hmm. It's a nice transition from kind of the classroom and an internship to you know their first job. The other place I found mentoring to be really important is when you're learning a completely new skill set like mm-hmm. this, which could be ACT or cognitive functional therapy. Talk to us about the mentoring. What does that look like in the studies that you identified? Yeah, that's actually one thing that is a little bit problematic. The training is not uh, usually described in much detail there, so we don't know actually much. But what it looks like is that they have had different kind of approaches, like they have had group meetings where they go through some patient cases, and then somebody would have support from psychologists where they have one-on-one or group meetings. Then they would get feedback from their supervisors like somebody comes and watches you work or you provide a video and you get feedback. And then there was also some kind of self-feedback. How do you say in English? <laughs> I don't know. And also some peer support, like they would mentor them uh, like each other in a group. So different kind of approaches. And some had practice patients that they should report and then they got feedback from them. So there's lots of different ways to mentor people. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we don't know what is the best way. Actually, I haven't seen any research in our field, at least, like how to even train mentors and what would be the optimal way. Yeah, I haven't either. And I've actually looked kind of high and dry for it. I have not found anything. And it's interesting because in my perspective, I don't believe we'll ever find like the perfect way to train or mentor someone with regard to pain, because ultimately pain is contextual. Mm -hmm. So whether you're training pain in a didactic setting or whether you're training these things in a more case-based approach to learning. Both are important, but ultimately, pain is contextual. So you have to obviously get into the clinic with real people. And even then, just like a rainbow, there are many hues and different colors of everyone who has pain and what their pain experience is like. So it's an interesting topic to talk about, but there's no research on it. And I'm not quite sure we'll ever really see, you know, we'll ever really be able to put clear indicator of exactly how we should be training and mentoring. But along those lines, how many hours of training did you find were available in these studies for the participants? Yeah, that I'm sure it was a range, right? Yes. The lowest was 10 hours and the highest was 150 hours, if I understood correctly from the papers I read. So that's quite a big range. Yeah. One study used just internet-based training, but the others were like face-to-face. Right. So you can train over the internet, asynchronous, meaning there's no interaction, mm-hmm. or obviously you can have live workshops. And you mentioned somewhere between 10 to 150. That's quite a spread. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in the highest number of hours, so they were having a lot of mentoring and support afterwards, like even for one year after the training. 
Was there a mean or a median that stuck out to you as you looked at those numbers? Or was it just hard to identify based on what was provided in the, in the previous research? Well, I think those studies that just had the workshop, so that would be like 10 to 15 hours or something like that. And then if there was some mentoring, so then it would go over 20 hours. And then there was just a couple of studies with 100 hours or 150. So, so there were a couple of outliers in both. And some studies, I assume they would have had more because they reported they had mentoring, but it was not really clear how much. So I'm not sure. Yeah. What I'm finding in my practice is that around 20 hours is good to deliver the information. And then you need a couple of touch points, usually about three mentoring sessions to give people Mm -hmm. a chance to implement it and to work on some case studies and to, of course, have some time for question and answer. People oftentimes have questions about places they bump into as they start to implement Mm -hmm. it into practice. Yeah. And what I think is important is that we should actually train people until competency. We shouldn't set that like exact number that this is going to be the 20 hours of training. Some people are going to probably need more and some people are going to need less based on their background and uh, ways of learning and uh, learning possibilities. Yeah. There's some very fast adopters and then there are some people Mm. who take a little bit longer. One of the things that I'm discovering as I'm starting to train clinicians in different biopsychosocial techniques is some professionals have a difficult time being flexible, meaning moving from, let's say, a pain science education intervention into cognitive functional therapy or into ACT. So as physical therapists, we're often trained on different types of manual techniques. So I mentioned before, McKenzie and Mulligan, and we kind of implement those wonderfully. I'm seeing some therapists able to implement the biopsychosocial interventions, and I'm seeing some therapists starting to struggle with competing theories along the psychosocial realm. Did anything like that kind of pop up in your literature review? Not really that I could say from these studies. I think that's a relevant issue, and I think it's kind of interesting that quite a lot of these approaches, like cognitive behavioral therapy or ACT or something, they would have a lot in common actually more in common than different. And I think it's interesting because, of course, everybody wants to make their trademark. So yeah. we're starting to have more and more different names for that's different right. approaches. And I think that's when we start to get in trouble. Actually, we are just renaming things that are combining old stuff. Yeah, we have lots of new names for things that are kind of new flavors of the same ice cream almost. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is that therapists are learning these different types of theories and they can all intermingle with each other in practice. And as a therapist, mm-hmm. you should hold theories lightly and not really kind of grasp too tight onto one theory as this being the best, most evidence way to treat mm-hmm. someone. Yeah. From the point of view of cognitive functional therapy, so I can say that I think the idea is more of like having an evidence-based practice that is evolving all the time, like a collection of best ways to help our patients and it's not a fixed approach so i think that's the problem when we create a treatment approach that is like this is a method x and it's not evolving so if we are flexible and taking on the new evidence and changing our practice based on that so i think things would be much easier excellent was there something surprising that came up in the research that surprised you at the end when you looked at all the data and when you wrote the paper up well After interviewing the physiotherapist in our own study in Finland, so actually the results were quite similar from those that we saw in Finland. But I think the thing that struck me most was maybe the treatment fidelity thing and that I mentioned earlier and the dilemma between 
like wanting a structure and then again rebelling against that. So I think those were something that I hadn't thought about in that sense before. And also like with the treatment fidelity and mixing and matching. So that would be perfect in that sense that we want to individualize. And also these approaches the physios were training were person-centered mm-hmm. approaches and probably also wanted to individualize. So I think there is a little bit of dilemma that I don't know what would be the best way to fix that in the training, but I think that was interesting. What has some of the feedback been from the professional community, from researchers about your paper? I think I haven't had any <laughs> any negative feedback so far. Uh, people have been just, I don't know has it, whether anybody has yet read the paper, but, <laughs> but uh, a lot of people have been sharing it and being thankful for us to do this kind of study. But I'm still waiting for the real discussion around these topics. But I think it's because this is experiences from the physiotherapist, so you can't really argue with that. So I think that's like reason for not having so much like opinions towards one end or another. And do you have plans to follow this up? Would you have other studies coming out that are similar or kind of piggyback off the information that's here? Our own study from Finland was also about, uh, we interviewed physiotherapists who had participated CFT training as part of our project. But now what I'm doing is asking the patients who, who have been uh, treated by physios who have undergone the training. So I'm just analyzing the data and it's also interesting to see what, what is their perception of this, this kind of approach. Because what I can say already now that it's different from what they're used to. So. Excellent. Well, the work you're doing is super important for physiotherapists and, of course, other health professionals. And, of course, we'll make sure to share the link to your paper again, which is Physiotherapist Perceptions of Learning and Implementing a Biopsychosocial Intervention to Treat Musculoskeletal Pain Conditions. Of course, be following your work, Rika, as it develops. And as we close this episode, I want to thank you for joining us and let us know how we can follow you and stay abreast of all the work you're doing. Okay, so maybe the best way to follow me is on Twitter. And maybe we can write the link in the text. And our research group, wonderful group from Perth Curtin University and the CFT team. So they're having the website uh, Pain Ed, which is worth following. And for listeners, so we have a company named MoveDoc, but we are publishing only in Finnish. So sorry, others, but we're sharing a lot of information there. So we are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Great. And we'll, of course, include all those links. You can find them on the page at the Integrative Pain Science Institute. Of course, we know everyone's work. Peter O'Sullivan has done great work with cognitive functional therapy. And of course, now your work, piggybacking off of that. I want to thank Rika for being on the Healing Pain Podcast this week, talking about biopsychosocial interventions for physical therapists. Make sure you share this information out with your friends, family, and colleagues on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you are talking about physical therapy and of course, safe and effective ways to treat pain. I'm Dr. Joe Tata, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more, visit integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. That's integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. Sign up to receive weekly updates, leave a review on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends. 